Good morning. Are you thankful that God has given us another week to come together to worship Him? Uh, this is a, a gift and a real blessing to us. Please be turning with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. In just a moment, we'll begin reading at verse 5. If you were with us this morning in the adult Sunday school hour, you know we took on a pretty challenging subject. Um, And along the way, we looked at, if I counted right, more than 20 passages of Scripture to try to bear that out in a a broad, big-picture way. Uh, What I'd like to do now is to take some careful time and look at one of those passages with you very closely. And that's what we're doing here in Isaiah chapter 10. This chapter comes to us amid uh, a section of condemnation and judgment against God's people. In fact, you're going to hear in just a moment, God call Israel a godless nation and the people of my wrath, he will call them. And in judgment, what God is doing is he is bringing Assyria, the nation who we know from history is going to do what is predicted here. It's going to conquer them. They're going to inflict great suffering on them and they're going to carry them off into exile. Um, I chose not to include some examples of the uh, Assyrian atrocities that they were known for in these sorts of uh, events and campaigns. It is horrific. Maybe you've heard of some of those things. Uh, But what's being spoken of is not a good time in Israel's history here. This is a time of great mourning and judgment. And what we see is that God is bringing this to them. So that they're doing that as an instrument of God. The pagan nation of Assyria being used as the very instrument of God. But that raises the question for us. Does God's use of Assyria in this way mean that what they're doing is good? This is one of the questions that will be answered in what we see this morning. But what we're going to see is going to reach in its application far beyond Assyria in the 8th century B.C. Because of Assyria in the 8th century B.C., we're going to come this morning face-to-face with some very powerful and common misconceptions that we can hold in our own hearts about things like how God's approval is discerned, how God's approval is measured. We're going to read together beginning of verse 5 through verse 19. Would you please stand with me as we read from God's word? Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For, he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, 
Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Let's go to this God and ask him to bless us and guard us now as we look deeper into his word. Would you pray with me? Father, you have been so kind to us. We experience it now. Lord, there are many thoughts that are represented in this room. There are many people not here this week that are traveling that we're thinking of and praying for their safety. And there are, there are other personal um, struggles and trials that are being, uh, being endured right now. And Lord, we ask you to help us to bring those things to you right now and to lay them before your word. We thank you for your goodness to us that you are so kind to call us near to you to feast on your word. And Lord, we ask that you would protect us as we do it, that you would guard my words as I speak. Lord, give us energy and focus that is fitting, giving given the seriousness of what it is we are doing as we open up your very word. And we pray this confidently, Lord, knowing that this, this is your will for your people. And so thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at this passage by breaking it up into three pieces. The first piece we'll see is verses 5 and 6. Then we'll look together at verses 7 through 14. And the third piece is going to be verses 15 through 19. Verses 5 and 6 first, and we could title this, uh, what I have titled this sermon, which is the question, why the woe? Why the woe? This begins with a woe pronounced, a statement of condemnation against Israel. But what's interesting is verses 5 and 6 emphasize God's real agency in what Assyria is doing, his activity. Do you see his first-person language? Verse 5 
He calls Assyria the rod of my anger. And the staff in their hands, he says, that's my fury. Verse 6, he says, I send them and I command them. And this is where we need to begin by noticing in verses 5 and 6, God's clear control over the events that are being described. And how does he describe them? What is God doing with Assyria here? Well, he's using them, he says, as a rod of his anger, a rod of his fury. And the picture that's being painted is pretty vivid, and it is terrifying. Uh, There are several words that could have been used for anger. The word that's used here comes from the word that means nose, nostrils in the Hebrew. And the reason for that connection is because of the sense that we have of the fury you can view through watching somebody's nose. When someone is breathing through their nose, what's the picture? They are clenched in their teeth. Their mouth is closed. You can imagine someone fuming with this sort of nostril breathing. The staff that's, that's described here, other versions, I read it from the ESV, other versions translate it, um, at least with words that are more vivid to me, a cudgel. I don't know that I've ever held anything I would consider a cudgel. That sounds violent. Um, A club, another translation renders it. So the picture we have here is that of of Almighty God himself standing, teeth clenched, breathing through his nose while he white knuckles a club. And that club has a name. It's called the Nation of Assyria. And this is what's facing the ones that he calls the people of his fury. This is a terrifying picture. He's sending them against Israel, according to verse 6. Who, as we've seen, uh, he calls here a godless nation. And the purpose is also given to us in verse 6. He's sending them not just to stare Israel down, but to take spoil and seize plunder. He's sending them to tread down, to tread them down like the mire of the streets, for goodness sakes. And we know from history that this mission is going to be accomplished. This is exactly what's going to happen. They will succeed in conquering Israel. Starting around 732 B.C., they'll set up a puppet government there that will uh, be, serve as vassals for them for about 10 years. And then when Sennacherib d- realizes that there's some, some sneaky business going on, he'll just go in and finish the job. So around 722, the capital of Samaria is conquered. Israel is sent off into exile, and we have the start of what is then known as the Ten Lost Tribes. This is what's coming. This was God's purpose, we find here. And, of course, he accomplished his purpose because he always accomplishes his purpose. Who will stand in his way? So it's his intent, it's his purpose, it's his instrument. And that begs the question that we're asking here, why the woe? Why does he start with woe against, Israel, against Assyria? And in detail, this will be dealt with in verses 7 through 14. But here in verse 5, we can already see uh, a picture of Assyria's problem. When God says, the staff in their hands is my fury. See, this is the truth that they do not acknowledge and will not acknowledge. They are not living lives of submission to the Lord. They are his instruments here. But make no mistake, they're not submitted to him as their Lord. And even as they fulfill his will, they operate as if they were completely separate from him. 
You can see it again in verse 7. Notice there. He says of them, but he, after speaking of God's intentions, the prophet writes, but he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. We have to understand what we're, what we're really asking. This is what we're really asking when we ask the question that maybe we ask sometimes. Um, in this case, it would sound like this. Why would God be angry with his own instrument? What we're really asking is, does God's use of that instrument mean God's approval of the inner life of that instrument? Because he uses him. Does that mean that he approves of the instrument? We're going to find very clearly here that God does not approve of the condition of Assyria's heart in this matter. And while God chooses to use their sinful hearts to compel them toward Israel, he is right and just to condemn them for those sinful hearts. This is, in fact, where he goes next as we come into verse 7, and we start the second section here, verses 7 through 14. We can call this a description of the Assyrian heart. This is where God lays out his case against Assyria, the reasons that there is woe being pronounced against them. What we find from the beginning is that even as God's agency was made clear in verses 5 and 6, Assyria's own agency is also highlighted throughout the rest of this section. There are going to be six verses uh, here, not all in the same uh, place, some stuff in between, but there will be six verses that speak to to Assyria's role and what's going on. And it's interesting that in those six verses, the first person verb is used seven times, I do this, and the first person pronoun is used four times, which is important in that language because you don't have to use the pronoun. You don't have to actually say I. It's wrapped up in the verb itself. You say I when you're making the point emphatically that it's me. And they use it four times in these six verses. The affirmation of Assyria's real agency in this is unmistakable. So what's going on in the heart of Assyria? Well, verse 7 tells us that whatever it is, it's not God's. His heart does not think as God thinks. And we can put what follows here in terms of this description, we can put it into two groups. We just see descriptions of both pride on the part of the Assyrians and godlessness on their part. There is some overlap in those two ideas, aren't there? Godless living must come out of a deep-seated pride. But I think there's a way for us to see both of them as being emphasized here in these verses. And it's interesting, both times, the the charges that God gives to them are going to be proven true by using their own words against them. Do you see both in verse, look at verse 8 and look at verse 13. See that they both start with this sort of courtroom uh, statement. For he says, and here comes the evidence. God doesn't just declare that they are this way. He proves it with their own words. Sort of makes me think of one of the passages we mentioned this morning when Jesus promised that we will give account for every idle word that we speak. This apparently is the case here as well. Let's begin seeing what he he, uh, tells us about Assyria concerning their pride. Verse 7, he begins saying uh, of Assyria and of the Assyrian king that it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. 
What a way to put that. So we have a clear account of violent and destructive desires. But what's going to be emphasized here is the fact that that thirst, that violent thirst, is insatiable. His intent is to cut off nations, not a few. And in what follows, he shows it to be an act of prideful self-exaltation. We can see it in the words that God chooses to quote from them. Look at verse 8. For he says, so now we have some insight into the thinking of the king of Assyria. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Now he's not describing a situation where he took his commanders and promoted them in times of war to to a status of a king. That's not what's going on. He's not creating new kings as he's going along. The, The boast here is in the fact that his core of commanders is made up of former kings that he had conquered and then put into his service. They used to reign a people themselves. Their people are gone, and now he works for me. That's what's being boasted of here. This is an end zone dance. It's the wrong season, but I'm not a, not a baseball guy. So I'm going to use, I'm, it's an end zone dance. That's what this is. He's saying, look at what I have done, and look behind me. Look at all the defenders on the field going back. And then he lists them out in verse 9, in geographical order. So Assyria had come from the northeast, traveling this way as they're moving in the direction of Israel. Kalno was southwest of Carchemish. Beneath Kalno, you had Arpad. Beneath that, you had Hamath, southwest of that. Next had come the Arameans and uh, their city, Damascus. You see all those names here? All of them conquered. And the question is, is Israel and their, their capital, Samaria, are they going to be any different? One commentator put it this way. He said, the king looks forward, seeing the future in light of the past. Six cities are named in pairs. In each pair, the first is further south than the second. And the king is reasoning, I have taken these. I can take that. The list is not a historical description of the march, but an impressionistic expression of the idea of, and here it is, inexorable advance. You've got a manifest destiny thing going on here in the mind of the king of Assyria. Samaria next. That's the idea. Before we reach verse 12, we need to notice, maybe you noticed it when we read it. Did you notice in verse 10 and 11 the irony? In the thinking of the king of Assyria, let me read those again. Verse 10. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? You see the criticism being leveled here against God's people? Their carved images don't compare in quality to the carved images of the other kingdoms Assyria has already faced. What are, what are carved images doing there? The ESV Study Bible makes a, what I thought was a great comment here. They, they say, Jerusalem and Samaria ought not to have idols at all, but should trust in the Lord. In reality, though, their trust is in idols that cannot measure up even in an idol contest. How far they have fallen. And so rightly does God call them here a godless nation. 
speaking of godless, when we come into verse 12, we begin to see now the emphasis shift. Not, it, it, we haven't departed from pride, but now what's being emphasized is that in their heart, in their way of living, they are living a godless life. We get a preview of this in verse 12 uh, when it comes to the judgment that's, that's coming their way. This is going to come more fully in verse 16, but notice in verse 12, he just says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. So there again, this destruction coming is God's work. When he has finished this, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Arrogant heart, which is what we've already seen. And the boastfulness, which does what? To glory. But put all the glory on himself. And just like in verse 8, God's accusation here is now proven on the basis of the king's own thoughts. And look with me at those thoughts, because they betray the godlessness that exists in his heart. What do I mean by godlessness? I mean, he is uh, living with a mindset and a lifestyle that lives as if God did not exist. That's what it means to be godless. I think, I choose, I act as if he weren't there. We see it all throughout, verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, for he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Do you hear the king's claim? on the power and control that have operated in his life. The consequence of thinking this way is that God is not considered in the nation's actions and God is not thanked for the nation's blessings. Let me say those two again because we're going to come to the book of Romans in just a moment and find these same things there. God is not being considered in the nation's actions and God is not being thanked For the nation's blessings. His problem, of course, is that where there is no consideration of God, there God continues to be, doesn't he? It has no impact on him. It does have an impact on me if I think that way. And what the Bible says is that as I live a life like that, a life of godlessness, what happens in me is characterized as corruption. I begin to become corrupted in my thinking in my living. Keep these two things in mind and keep your finger in Isaiah 10, but flip over for a moment to Romans chapter 1 so we can just remember some of the descriptions that Paul gives us there of unbelief in general and its consequences. Romans 1, 21, first, speaking of natural man, says, for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Failure to honor him as God, failure to give thanks to him for what they have received. And what does Paul say is the result of this? Look down now at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. The list goes on. And I ask you, who does that sound like? Can you hear Assyria in those descriptions? Of course, Paul is not describing Assyria here. He's describing unbelief. This is what unbelief looks like. God is rejected. God gives them over to that debased mind. And this is the result. This is what happens to us when we live as if God isn't. Now, what if God then takes that corrupt, wicked instrument and uses it to accomplish his purpose? Praise be to God for all his ways. Is he then to blame for the wickedness that was within that instrument? God has been rejected. That's what started this whole thing. God has been rejected. God has been ignored. And the very corruption that has resulted has created this bloodthirsty monster of a nation, in our case, looking at Assyria, who is known for dashing children against the rocks, when its madness is used to accomplish God's good purposes. Where does the guilt lie? And how much more in that context when the nation thinks it has something to boast about as this is taking place? We come to verse 15 here and we see the boasting that has happened and we see God's thoughts about that boasting. So the third section here is verses 15 through 19. We could title this, God's Verdict and Judgment. Look at verse 15. This is now God's response. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. It's a crazy picture to try to think of a rod trying to, and thinking itself able to pick up the one that is lifting it. What a failure to understand the reality of the situation. That anything that they do is only being done by the authority and control and permission of another. It's a fundamental misunderstanding here. And that's what I think the lesson of that verse is, is the realization that we are instruments in his hands. Any control that we have in the world around us, And we do exercise control over the world around us in ways. And that control is real. But that control has been given to us by our God. And it is never exercised out from underneath his sovereign lordship. In fact, it cannot be. Because we are clay and he is potter. We are the axe. And he is the one who hews. We are the saw. He is the one who wields it. We are the rod. He is the one who lifts it. God uses many means and many instruments in his creation. When he uses human instrumentation, he's not using mindless creations, is he? Remember, Assyria's agency in this account was upheld and taken very seriously. We are created as image bearers of God. And part of what that means is that we are moral agents. We are able to act. 
been granted to us. And as a result, we are answerable to God. But God's human uh, instrumentation, when he uses us, nothing of his sovereign control is usurped. And we will answer. And in our passage, Assyria is made to answer. Beginning in verse 16, we see the condemnation, we see the judgment that is headed their way. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory, burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Now let's think for just a moment about the picture that's being painted here of this judgment. What we have is a series of metaphors. The strength of Assyria, and probably in a specific way the army of Assyria, is being pictured here in, uh, you might say, agricultural terms. Thorns, briars, forest, fruitful land, trees. So speaking of the might and power and glory of Assyria. And there's a few things we need to understand uh, in order to make this picture very clear. Notice, first of all, I just find this uh, attractive. I find, I, I appreciate as these things, as I'm able to recognize them. Uh, do you see the the poetic arrangement here, even as it speaks of God's judgment, it speaks of it in terms that go sickness, fire, fire, sickness. Just from a literary standpoint, you can go, wow, this is, there's, there's more thought going into the presentation of these ideas as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit than I might notice sometimes. There seem to be three elements of their destruction that are being emphasized here. One of them is a sense of sudden calamity. Do you see the time frame in verse 17? It will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Something of a sudden calamity is being uh, spoken of here. Along with the suddenness of that calamity, you also see a description of the complete nature of of that destruction. So verse 18, whether you're talking about forest you know, uncultivated growth or fruitful land, planned cultivation, all of it. This is a picture of totality. In verse 19, the remnant of the trees, it says, is so few that a child can write them down. One of the things that can be tricky in teaching math to young children is this idea of place values. And for a while, they kind of master the 1 through 10 and then uh, that's it for a while. And then at some point there's a breakthrough and you learn that there's more than that and, and that there's repetition. So you can go from the tens even to the hundreds. Um, and then you've got to put that comma in there and a whole other place value when you get to the thou- exponentially growing like that can be difficult for a child. Well, whatever's left here for Assyria, a child's not going to have a hard time writing that down. This aspect of the destruction, suddenness, completeness, we find the fulfillment of in Scripture itself. If you were to look over and maybe do this for just a moment, Isaiah 37, 
and find verse 36. And this is repeated in 2 Kings, actually, word for word. We find the end of this story. What happens when Assyria comes for Israel? Well, they conquer them, and then they push on toward Jerusalem, because why not? Manifest destiny. They come down into Judah, and they besiege Jerusalem, and who's going to stop me? Verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And history will tell us, and uh, it will go on to say in the account, that that king will then soon be worshiping in his God's temple, and his sons will kill him, and they'll run off. This is what's coming. And surely this is a fulfillment of these aspects of the prophecy. Sudden, calamitous destruction. We know from the history of it that it's at that point going forward that Assyria begins their decline as a world power. And in thinking of that, we can see the third element that's pictured here in these verses uh, in Isaiah 10 about the destruction. Because these don't just speak of a sudden calamity. They also speak about a slow wasting away. Did you see that? The Assyrian decline that's eventually going to be finished when Babylon comes and takes them out. It begins at this defeat at the hands of God. And verse 18, from then on, what's happening with them is that they are wasting away like a sick man. Now then, we have been, as we're thinking about that calamity, about the destruction here, we're sort of zoomed in. Let's zoom back out for a moment and understand the big picture here. God has granted Assyria tremendous success for a time. You understand that's what's required for them to go and just knock off nation after nation. They have to have health for a long time. They have to have great financial blessing. Their, their women must bear many children, many sons to grow up as warriors. There must be time of peace so that they can train. Think of all of the blessing that had to precede a world dominance situation. God has been granting them tremendous success. Should they have assumed that they were in his favor because of that? Should they have assumed that they were safe because of that? These are in the king's thinking, those sorts of ideas. He's recorded as saying, uh, it's mentioned in that Isaiah 36 passage, but also in 2 Kings 18, 25. He comes or he gives a message to Jerusalem. And here's what he says in verse 25 there. Is it without Yahweh that I have come up against this place to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And in verse 35, lest you think that he is faithfully coming as an instrument of Yahweh. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. See, this is what it sounds like to take my worldly, temporal success and interpret it to mean that I am safe and pleasing in God's sight. Now, what if this were a perfect situation? What would Assyria's perfect response have been to Isaiah chapter 10? If things went well, what would this have looked like? Well, let's see. 
They would have, kind of like Nineveh with Jonah, right? They would have heard the prophecy of Yahweh about their sinful heart and their coming destruction, and they would have turned. They would have repented. But the king here has decided to interpret his positive circumstances as affirmation, in spite of the word of God, that he was doing what he should. Does that idea come into contact with us in our experience today? Anywhere you can think of that we might struggle in those same ways? We could describe the whole of it one way. We could say, we deal with this anywhere where we ignore God and then yawn. It's tax season. Do you know that? Tomorrow is April 1st. That's hard for me to even imagine. I take lightly certain laws of the land about reporting what happens. No lightning, no consequences, except maybe a better financial outcome. Well, what conclusions do I draw from that then? See, that's the question, isn't it? Where do I draw my conclusions from? Do I draw my conclusions from the temporal outcome of what's happening around me? Or do I draw my conclusions from, say, Romans 13, 1 and 2? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So in this example I set up, no judgment has happened, except maybe a better financial outcome. God says, be warned. Where do I draw my conclusions? Or what about our mindfulness of commands? This might get a little bit more difficult for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now that is difficult. That is difficult when we find ourselves in the dark trials that life brings. And it's difficult. The temptation is that everything seems out of control. And everything seems so dark. Maybe you're in a place like that right now. And when everything seems out of control and everything seems dark, it is so easy to decide that I'm not being watched over and that there is nothing to be thankful for. But do you notice in both of those things that God's command in 1 Thessalonians 5 to give thanks in all circumstances, then that means obedience to both of the elements of Romans 1.21. I am under command by God. And what will I do? That verse commanded us to acknowledge God as Lord over our circumstances and to give thanks to Him for what we have received. It's a tremendous challenge for us. It means that in the darkness, my task is to look for the blessings of God. Will you ever look faithfully for the blessings of God while you draw breath and fail to find them? Does he have weeks with his children where he says, no, not this week, I'm busy, I'm all out? Or does he promise his constant presence? We need to read our Bibles more when we come to those places where we look at our lives and we think, I have nothing. 
to be thankful for. Will we continue to acknowledge him as Lord over our circumstances and give thanks to him for what he gives us? One of the things we see very clearly from Isaiah chapter 10 here this morning is that success, worldly success, does not equal God's approval. Business, relationships, family. I must never think it's so simple as to equate temporal success with the approval of God because God uses many means in many different ways. Here he blesses Assyria tremendously for a time to accomplish his purposes and it never signals his approval. Never. My measure of a successful day then must go beyond the temporal conditions that I find myself and have to reach to this question. Did I live today before the face of God? Did I give him thanks today for what he has done? If we truly know God to be the big God that is revealed to us in the scriptures, the God who is in the driver's seat of human history, the God who controls all things according to his perfect and holy will, well, then and only then will we leave the outcomes in our lives to him and content ourselves with the question, did I live today? before the face of God. Can I say amen, not just in word, but in deed, to Solomon's verdict at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, when he said, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring, in, will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And finally, as we think about the good God who is in the driver's seat of redemptive history, using any means he pleases to accomplish his good purposes, we must never focus on that path without remembering the destination. Where is he driving all of this? Depending on how you're thinking of it, there are a couple of ways you could answer that correctly. You could answer that by looking to Calvary where our opening picture of the God who is furious against sin, we find, while is true, we find that to be an incomplete picture of God's outlook on sinners. We find that this God, who is righteously angry with our sins, chooses to show mercy in the person of his Son, as the furious wrath of the Father is drunk empty by Christ. And we find that this was his plan from the beginning. I've never been able to take out of my mind the picture that C.S. Lewis painted in his Narnia books when he has Aslan, who pictures Christ, talking about the effects of what has happened and saying, and saying, I will see to it that the worst of it falls on me. When we look to Calvary, we certainly get an answer to the picture of who is this? And where is he driving this to? But we could look beyond that. If we look ahead to our promised glorification, he is driving all of this to the day when his people, sinners everyone, but ransomed by the blood of Jesus, will be presented to him, in the words of Colossians 1.22, holy 
and blameless and above reproach before him. <clears throat> this is uh, the picture of your future because he is in the driver's seat. Those words will be descriptive, descriptive of you. John wrote in his epistle, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called sons of God. And we will be forever grateful that one such as this is the one directing our course. And in that day, all of his purposes and all of his means will receive the glory that they deserve. And that praise will come from our lips. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, what can we say to truths like this? As we behold your might, your power, and as we hear your promise that you work all things for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose, we as your people look back into our own lives and see quite clearly, more clearly every day, that we are objects of that mercy, not because of anything in us, And we simply thank you. Father, please help us. Use your word, use this morning to help us to grow as a people who live before your face. You, our Lord, our Father, as our sole audience, a people who are always quick to look for the great blessings that you give us every day. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ when we fail in these things. And we know that we do. We thank you that he is faithful. Be with us now as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for our benediction this morning? From 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. We are dismissed.